How's everybody doing today? Great, great. Well, it's a privilege and a blessing to be able to open up God's Word to you and with you. If you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Acts chapter 5 as we continue our series on uh, Unfinished, the Church on Purpose. And I'm really excited to be able to share some things with you this morning that the Lord has uh, put on my heart as I've been looking at this passage. Uh, any campers here? Anybody uh, like to go camping, tenting, uh, just kind of be out in nature? Yeah. Um, anybody uh, run into those days where you just had some uh, massive um, uh, camping challenges, uh, particularly with the weather? <laughs> I know some families here, it seems like every time they go, they get rain. Um, but uh, I uh, remember back in my uh, high school days, actually at the end of high school, early college, we used to go to a festival called the Cornerstone Festival, a uh, fantastic music, Christian music festival, a lot of alternative bands, a lot of different music that you didn't normally hear. And uh, we would camp. It was like, it was like, a, you know, like a Woodstock uh, without alcohol and uh, with Jesus <laughs> at the center. And uh, it was just you know, thousands of people. We would tent. And uh, my first time doing that with a group of friends, we just, it was actually here, up here in, in Grays Lake in Lake County Fairgrounds. That's where it used to be back in the uh, late 80s. I'm dating myself, um, early 90s. Uh, but, uh, and uh, we went, and I just remember one night, uh, just a massive storm uh, went through. And, uh, and uh, I don't know if you've ever seen tents flying in the air and just kind of getting blown over, and if you've ever been in a situation like that, but that's what it was like. The storm was just, just, just terrible. And uh, I, uh, I didn't know anything, really, about what was going on except the fact that we needed to somehow hang on to our tents. <laughs> and the phrase I kept using was, fortify the bottom, fortify the bottom, because everybody's tent was just flying away, and it was just like this massive storm, massive wind gusts. It, it just, it just kind of just destroyed the whole festival for like, a, for like the next you know, 24 hours. And uh, it, just, it just was a, a massive reality. And so this morning, I, just, I was thinking about that because one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, uh, have you ever experienced an unstoppable force of nature? Anybody here ever been in a tornado, like in the tornado, and like it was like, it was like pulling on you? Yeah, I mean, I'm just like looking at it as you drive by, but like literally it was pulling on you. I have not had that experience, thank God. Um, I do remember learning how to swim after I had just learned how to swim, jumping into the ocean, visiting my sister, in uh, California uh, as, a, uh, as, a, as a, a 10 or 11 year old and thinking that I could just swim out into the ocean and <laughs> just being hit by waves and waves and waves and just realizing uh, how powerful that is. And I share that with you guys today because um, today we're, we're looking at uh, a story in the, in, the, in the history of the church, in the, in the early church, really where um, the gospel is unstoppable. It's an unstoppable force. And uh, I think if you've ever experienced something that is unstoppable, that you just couldn't stop it, no matter what, you realize that you're dealing with a power greater than yourself. And uh, I, I want to challenge us this morning to ask this question of ourselves. Not only do we know something that's unstoppable, but have we experienced the gospel? Have we actually experienced the power of the gospel to change our hearts in our minds, okay? So uh, I'm going to read the, I'm going to start off by reading Acts 5, 12 to 24, and then I will pray for us. And I just, as you're, as you're uh, listening to this, you may want to just uh, tune in on just how powerful the gospel is, and, the, and particularly the church 
when it comes to facing op- opposition. The apostles, uh, verse 12, Acts chapter 5, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more women, more and more men and women believed in the, in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Verse 16, crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and they sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that um, uh, you you are stronger, you are greater, uh, and I thank you for the power of the gospel. And your church, Lord, you said that you would build your church uh, upon the confession of Peter, upon the, uh, what he said about who Jesus Christ is. And you said that the gates of hell will not prevail. Father, I, I know that there are things in our lives this morning that are holding us back. Uh, and there's opposition that we are all facing. It might be relational. It might be directly uh, spiritual. It might be some physical issues. It might be financial Lord, I ask in the name of Jesus, whatever it is that's holding us back, that we would know, Lord, that you are more powerful. You are greater. Uh, Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Father, I thank you for the power of the gospel. I thank you, God, that um, nothing can stop your church and your message and this message of life. Father, as we look at this today, I pray in Jesus' name that you would give us uh, a heart that's ready to receive your word. And I pray that you would direct my words, Lord, to be uh, filled with your spirit and to be used for your purposes. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, amen. So I need to warn you today, we're going to have a little bit of an interactive sermon with the people. I'm actually going to ask you to talk to the people next to you. So make sure you're sitting next to somebody you don't mind talking to, even if that is a family member. (laughs) Um, But uh, that's kind of where we're going to be going a little bit today. Um. We, uh, we had a wonderful blessing this past Tuesday. We had one of our college students who uh, came and shared their testimony with our, with our teenagers on Tuesday night. And his testimony was very interesting because he had grown up in the church. He had learned how to play the game. He had learned how to show up. And everybody on the outside thought he was doing really well when inside he was incredibly corrupt and he was aware of it. Uh, habitual liar, addicted to some things that were not healthy. 
And he said that he just kept moving along, moving along, and in his heart, he was rebelling against God. But nobody on the outside could ever tell that. Um, in fact, I was one of those people because I was involved. Uh, he was actually here for a, a period of time in our youth group. And uh, I remember thinking, wow, this guy is really awesome, and he's really receptive to the gospel, and everything was going smooth. But the reality was is that he said, you know what? It wasn't. And he was wrestling, and he was stiff-arming God, and he was constantly opposing the things of God in his life. And it got to the point where the Holy Spirit really grabbed a hold of him. And it wasn't until two things that he recognized. One was his, his struggle with sin and how bad sin was hurting him and hurting God. And the gospel, what Christ had done for him, that Christ had taken his sin on the cross and had died for him, and that when God looks at him in Christ, uh, he, he is righteous. He couldn't achieve a, a righteousness without, without Christ. And it transformed his life. And he talked about being born again. And uh, today he is uh, studying to be a pastor. And uh, he came and he shared his story with us. And it was a, it was a blessing with our students. And uh, I share that with you because I, I want to ask you, have you been transformed by the gospel? That's kind of the whole theme here in the book of Acts. The whole message um, is, is that uh, you know, God doesn't have a mission for his church. He made a church for his mission, which means that a church that is not on mission is not really a church, and believers who are not on mission are not really part of the true church. Think about this. Somebody once said Christianity and Palestine operated out of relationship, uh, but when it came to Greece, we tried to make it a philosophy. When it reached Rome, it became, it, people tried to make it into an institution. When it took Europe, it seemed like it became an institution. And when it reached America, we tried to make it into an enterprise. <laughs> but the original word here for church, and it's in this passage here, is ecclesia, ecclesia in Greek. And it means a called out ones, chosen ones. And the idea here is also an assembly. And uh, the, 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 the German word where we get uh, the church from uh, is where we get church from. I think it's kirche. Uh, Bert, you can correct me on that, a kirche means a place you gathered for religious purposes. So somewhere from Acts and the New Testament to where we are today, a lot of people have changed their thinking to think that church is about just a place that you go to or an event or a service, when in reality it's a group of people who were uh, gathered around a mission. And the mission is the gospel, okay? And that's what came first. Uh, a couple of verses just to... Um, uh, that you get, need to know, really, that are really important. Paul said Romans 1, in Romans 1.16, the whole theme of Romans is the Christian constitution. And he starts off by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the what? Yeah. Anybody know that verse? Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the what? The power of God to save people. And then if you look at Acts 4.33, because everything that's happening in Acts 5 right now is a result of the praying that's going on in Acts 4. And that's a result of what all the persecution that started in Acts 4 is what happened in Acts 3. They went and they healed a man in the name of Jesus, and they were preaching in the name of Jesus. And that healing is a result from Acts 2 because the Holy Spirit came upon uh, everybody on the church in Acts chapter 2, okay? And so, and Peter preached, and 5,000 people came to Christ. And Acts 2 and Acts 1 
that was where they were waiting for the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, wait. And, and, you know, there was, uh, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So I hope you guys are, are seeing the progression here. Sometimes when we jump into texts like this, we kind of forget where, it, where it's happening. I'm going to try to give you a bigger picture. At the end of Acts 4, if you have your Bibles open, there's a key verse, uh, verse 33. Verse 33 is a key verse, and it says this. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Now, let me ask you a question. What was the source of their power? Twice it says here, with great power, the apostles continued to testify. And God's grace was so powerfully at work. Obviously, the source was God. But if you look closely here, the power, the message, the power of the gospel is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I think of what the gospel is, I think of just the death. Jesus died for my sins. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to unpack that a little bit today. But I, what I want you to see is that, you know, and, we, and we've pointed this out for the last few weeks, but I know some of you may miss it, or I don't know about you, but I need to hear it, and I need to read it over and over again because I'm kind of thick-skulled. The power that, that they proclaimed was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. What changed scared skeptics, people who were afraid, who were not bold, who were not courageous, who were afraid to take a stand for Jesus, who saw him die, who saw him, uh, all these bad things happen, what changed them was the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what they would testify to. And guess what? That's what got them into trouble. <laughs> and that's kind of the story here as we pick up in Acts chapter 5, all right? So uh, as we're looking at this, I just want to uh, encourage you uh, to see that um, in, in Acts especially, but throughout the Bible, there are symbolic actions which occur in the realm of the physical in order to reveal to us the continuing possibilities to us in the realm of the spiritual. In other words, there's a lot of things that are that helpful. God teaches by the visible physical events which illustrate invisible spiritual situations and for, forces. The visible is occurring because of the invisible event which is not seen. The power of a changed life is because of the, the invisible work of the Holy Spirit in somebody's heart. So as we look at this, I think it's good to know that you must look behind the visible to the invisible. That is what God is forever doing, and he allows us to see the invisible by means, of invisible, by, by means of visible events. Now, look at verses 12 to 16. It says, where you have a clear, you have a clear de uh, uh, demonstration of the power of God. Okay? Let's look at these again. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. By the way, if you're wondering what Solomon's colonnade is, that was just off of the, the, uh, in Jerusalem, just off of the temple on the east portion. It was a long corridor area, and it was, it was, it was enough for, to, to fill lots of people. It was also a place where people gathered before and after uh, temple sacrifices. And so it was a strategic place for them to be because they would be able to be seen and they'd be able to, be, uh, be able to talk to people coming in and out of the temple. And it was also a very significant place. Now look at verse 13. It says, no one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. 
Now, my big idea this morning is this. The saving power of the gospel will always prevail despite opposition, okay? The saving power, you can't stop the power of the gospel. That doesn't mean everybody's going to be transformed by it. It just means that God is going to grow his church and his purposes will prevail and and the gospel is powerful. And that's what we see here. And uh, I want to answer the question, why? You say, Tony, how do I know that the saving power of the gospel, well, what is it about the power of the gospel that will always prevail despite opposition? And the first one here that I want you to see is that um, it, it caused people to draw a line in the sand. It, it challenges uh, people. Uh, the gospel thrives and Christ's church continues to grow amidst opposition because it draws a line in the ch- sand. It challenges people to be committed to something bigger than themselves. All right, Uh, look at verse 13. I love verse 13. It's just very interesting. It says, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Now, the them is referring to the believers that hung out in Solomon's colony, okay? And we already know from other verses that (laughs) God was doing amazing things with these people. They were sharing their goods. They 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 were meeting together regularly. They were praying for each other. They were sharing with the needy. Um, and then right before last week's story <coughs> was Ananias and Sapphira, who were supposed to be part of this group, but were playing the game, maybe. And they lied about the money that they brought. They said it was all of it, and God struck them dead. And so the, this, this passage is right before a great fear comes upon all these people, upon the church. And so it says here, the apostles performed many signs and wonders, but all the believers would meet together, but no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded um, by the people. What does that mean? I, I've been wrestling with that all week. And, and, I, and from commentators and just from looking at this in the context, it seems to be saying that this, that after they saw what was happened, you know, they said, you know what, I'm not just going to join this mission. I don't really know if I'm a part of this. It's going to require commitment. And, and, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to claim to be a Christian and join these people because, you know what? There's a line, of commitment, and and they saw what happened to Ananias, or they heard about it at least, and Sapphira, and there was this. There was this kind of like, okay, wait a second, it, it, you know, Jesus doesn't just call me to be here once a week. He calls me to give his give me his to trust entrust my life to him. But look at look at the second part of that verse even though they were highly regarded by the people. So there was a lot of <clears throat> people who were playing, who were, who were thinking about joining them and said, no, I'm not going to join them. That, that's too risky. That's too much, you know. I'll, I'll just show up once a week. I'll just do my temple sacrifice. I'll listen from the outside. I'll sit on the outskirts. You know, I'm not going to, you know, religion is a personal thing. Don't, don't take it too, per, you know, it's just between me and God. Don't get me going. I'm not going to go and, you know, share with the needy. I'm not going to go and, you know, give my life for this gospel. I'm going to hold back. But they looked at the Christians, at the new believers, and they said, wow, they had a high regard for them. And so just as a way of application this morning, number one, where are you? Where are you with this, with the gospel? Are you still checking it out and kind of saying, you know, I'm not going to dare join this mission, you know, church on purpose, you know, unfinished. No, I'm just going to come once a week and be a part of this and just kind of stand on the outside. And I'll read my Bible once in a while, you know, and pray when I have problems, you know. <laughs> but, 
Or are you somebody who's living it out? And you know what? The non-Christians around you have a high regard for you. In other words, there's a respect. They may not agree with you. They may not want, be wanting to become a Christian, but they respect what you stand for. They know that you're a believer. So I think this is a good, a, a good thing for us to think about. Uh, the God, why does the gospel thrive? It thrives because when you draw a line in the sand, it challenges people to be committed to something bigger than themselves. I uh, did some uh, research this week on how God is working in the global movement around the world. Uh, and as you know, um, China continues to grow uh, in, when it comes to Christians. And yet at the same time, China persecution con continues to be intensified. Uh, we're all familiar with the story of the amazing growth of the church during the oppression and persecution of the Maoist cultural revolution that closed China to the outside world for 40 years. Instead of crushing Christianity, one million Christians became 30 to 50 million. Uh, most uh, global strategists and uh, experts say that by 2050, uh, China will probably have the most evangelical Christians, uh, even though many of them are uh, underground. But uh, what is new and is not widely known, though, is what happened since Tiananmen, Tiananmen Square uh, back in, uh, in, uh, in June of 89. During the communist oppression, almost all of the church growth under the Mao revolution was among the poor, the peasants, the undereducated, under millions of them. But after the massacre of Tiananmen Square, many of the intellectuals of the land were openly disillusioned with the regime and the philosophy that could crush unarmed students. Uh, writing one year later, one insider said this, we have reports of thousands of intellectuals turning to Christ in at least five universities. No less than 10% of the students have been reported as turning to Christianity. That has continued for the last 20 years. And there is still, there is a group of people, it's not just the peasants, but it's, there's people in China that, are, that are, are coming to Christ because they're rejecting the communist worldview. Uh, Africa, the continent, was about 4% professing, professing Christian in 1900. Uh, it's almost 60% today professing Christian. Uh, there are over 20,000 new Christians every day in Africa. Africa is also one of the leading places of persecution. Soviet Union, after 70 years of atheistic repression, the Christian movement is about 46% of the population, over 100 million people, five times the size of the Communist Party. Um, Albania has opened. Mongolia, North Korea, and Cuba uh, have seen increase in spirituality. My point here is just to let you know that the gospel thrives when you're forced to make a stand. Okay? And so a good question for us this morning is, what is it costing us to be a Christian? What is it costing you and I, and have we, have we taken that step over that line? All right, let's keep going through this passage, um, and we'll keep uh, talking about why the saving power of the gospel always prevails despite opposition. Uh, verse 15 says, as a result, people brought, uh, verse 14 says, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to the no their number. So for the third time now, it keeps getting bigger and bigger, the church. Uh, 5,000 at least were saved at Pentecost. Uh, most people estimate about it's probably another, maybe up to 10,000 now after this, after Acts 5, they continue to preach. Uh, the city of Jerusalem at that time could hold about 40 to 50,000. So it, this, there's, you know, they're, they're making an impact. And as you can see, as we'll see later, that's why they get so jealous, the religious leaders. It, it wasn't an issue of just like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't want to believe in Jesus. It was more like, you know what, you're taking all our people. You're stepping on our toes. 
Look at verse 15. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Now, this is, this is very interesting. I don't know, you know, sometimes we read this stuff and we're just kind of like, you know, we don't actually picture it happening. But what if this was happening here? What if there was a healing, that God was healing people? Can you imagine people lining up? I mean, even right now in the group that we have right now, if we said after service, we're going to pray for healing. And God's spirit was at work and he was, you know, and he, and he was healing, like, like in this, at this situation. W- would you come forward? I don't know about you, but I have things, not just physical, but there's emotional, there's spiritual, there's, you know, there's burdens that we all carry that we would come. And that, that's what was happening. Now, we haven't talked yet about this whole issue of healing. Does God still heal today? You know, some people read the book of Acts, and especially young Christians, but even older Christians, and they get discouraged because they look at, they look at the book of Acts and they say, wow, all this stuff was happening back then. How come I don't see it happening now? All right. And uh, I'm going to try not to take too much time on this, but I want to answer that question a little bit. Uh, First of all, um, as you can see in the passage here, it was uh, primarily done by the apostles, okay? And so a lot of what is in the book of Acts is prescriptive, and uh, a lot of it is descriptive and a lot of it is prescriptive. Let me explain that. Descriptive is it describes what's happening. Prescriptive is saying this is what you should do okay and i'm 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 coming up with principles that are also repeated in other passages of scripture in the new testament especially that are displayed in the book of acts that we should follow should we pray for healing today of course god does still heal but it's important to know that in the beginning of the church this was done primarily almost exclusively through the apostles why because God was laying the foundation of the church and transferring the authority from Jesus. Jesus' authority was being transferred over to the apostles. And so they were able to do these things, okay? It doesn't say all the believers were walking around healing other people. Uh, uh, Corinthians talks about having a gift of healing in the church, and that's very significant. And what I've found when we've talked about healing is that there's two extremes that you can go to with this, Okay? Um, the, and I don't know if I could talk with the, uh, move around here with this with the microphone, but I'm going to try. Okay, uh, the, the one extreme is where people have developed these faith healing movements, the word of faith, where it's like, you know what? If you just believe it, Jesus will do it, and so you should be healed. When I was in college at Moody Bible Institute, I worked as a security guard. One of the best relationships I had, uh, and, and it was a man that I met with by the name of Paul Kunatz. Paul was a humble servant of the Lord. He had lost his legs in Vietnam. He was in a wheelchair. And he, he uh, I, I just, you know, when I think of people who are Christ-like, I think of Paul. And Paul's testimony to me was, you know, hey, I went to those faith healing movements, uh, you know, and, that I, and I wanted to be healed. And, and God did not heal me. And he got discouraged because the basic message in, these, in this extreme was, if you're not being healed, you don't have enough faith. It's your issue. As if faith is something that you have to conjure up. If you have enough faith, you know, then God will move. God will do it. And, you know, it's kind of like a half-truth. You know, the half-truths are, are the most deadliest of lies sometimes. 
you know, obviously the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he earnestly rewards those who seek him. Jesus said, if you have faith in me, you can move mountains. So what a lot of faith healers do or the word of faith movement does is they take some of those, those things out of context usually or just alone and they don't take the whole of scripture and they go over here and poor people like Paul are like, whoa, what's wrong with me? Why aren't I getting legs? You know? So that's one extreme and it's not biblical. It's not biblical. But the other extreme is over here where we just feel like, you know what? God did supernatural stuff you know, back then, but he ain't doing anything now. He's like the clock, you know, the clock maker who wound up the clock uh, hundreds of years ago, and then he's just kind of like, you know, just not there. The only thing he really did was he died on the cross for our sins. We'll go to heaven when we die, but that's about it. And usually these people are not in on the mission. They're usually the people who are not crossing the line in the sand. They're usually just kind of like sitting back and just, you know, trying to be good Christians. Unfortunately, some of these people are like really into Bible study sometimes. And they could be really like so much into the Bible, but their, their, their obedience is not caught up to their knowledge. <laughs> and so often they're not really walking in what they already know and what Scripture says. The Bible says to pray for those who are healed. Some of you know my story of my mom who was uh, afflicted with cancer when I was a teenager. And the elders came and they did James chapter 5. They anointed her with oil and they prayed for her. Uh, and and uh, and I thought in my little eighth grade mind at the time that uh, she was going to be healed because they did everything right and she loved Jesus and she had lots of faith. But she ended up being healed in a different way than I thought. She, began, she went to be with the Lord uh, within six months. She had stage four cancer, okay? Um, today we have modern medicine. Praise God, there's people in our congregation the last two weeks who were dealing with stage four cancer who are now in remission or who are cancer-free. Praise God. Yeah. Yeah, in the last two weeks, two people that we've been praying for as a church for a long time, one of them got a second PET scan, completely cancer-free. The other one is in remission. First time they heard that for two years. Praise the Lord. Now, what do you attribute that to? Is that a supernatural work? Well, anything that God does is supernatural, but he uses also natural means and modern medicine. I don't know where the line always is, 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 is deprecated, uh, I do know uh, that there are many people who have died from cancer. So, you know, we all have, we, and, this, and this goes back to our theology of miracles. You know, I, I, last week I offered you guys a book called The Case for Miracles. I highly recommend it by Lee Strobel. Because some of you are, are skeptics. Some of you may be seeking God, whether, you know, this stuff is really true. Some of you have been in the church a long time and you really don't believe God does supernatural things anymore. And I want to say he does. I know lots of people where, not lots, but I know several people where the doctor said, I can't explain this. This is a miracle. The person was healed. And I could introduce you to many stories like that. But then again, I could also introduce you to many stories where they were not healed. They didn't get the miracle. So what do we, what do, we do with that? What do we do with that as Christians? Well, the saving power of the gospel will always prevail. The purpose of of Christianity is not to always give us what feels good here on earth right now, but to transform us from within and give us a hope of the future. Christ has won the war. He has secured death's defeat. Okay? How do I know that? Because he rose again from the dead. And on the cross, he, uh, he, he accomplished much more than we could ever imagine. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 8. Um, 
I didn't uh, refer to Luke 6, but Luke 6 talks about Jesus when he, when he was healing people. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and all the people tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing from them all. Just want to let you know that what happens in Acts is very similar to what happened with Jesus. But did Jesus heal everybody? No. There were people that he did not heal, and when he healed them, did they still die? Yes. Did Jesus heal people when there wasn't a lot of faith? Yes. The, un, the, uh, the father with the, uh, with the demon-possessed son said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. If you can do anything, Jesus healed him. Martha said, I don't believe. <laughs> no, I don't believe. Jesus, Jesus still rose Lazarus from the dead, okay? So I'm not saying, you know, it, 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 we can't put God in a box. I guess that's the most important thing we can learn and say, oh, God's going to act this way if I do this. It's not a formula or a technique. It really is a deep reliance and a relationship with a God that is at work. I love what uh, Lucy said uh, to Miss, Mr. Beaver, remember, in uh, Chronicles of Narnia. You guys still here? How you doing? You guys with me? All right. Yeah. Don't worry. I'm going to give you that interactive moment in a second. Yeah, we'll be here till one. Um, but uh, no. Uh, but yeah, Lu, you know, Lu, they were trying to figure out who Aslan was. Lucy's like, who is this guy? You know, who is this Aslan, the lion? You know? And Mr. Beaver is like, oh, he's the king. He reigns. He's awesome. He's supreme. You know, is he safe? No, he's not safe. <laughs> He is not safe, but he's good. He is good. We can't tame God. All right, I put you in Matthew, I put you in Matthew 18. I'm sorry, Matthew 8 for a reason. I just discovered this this week. I probably heard it once before, but I, I don't know. It just really kind of rang true for me um, in, in a big way. Matthew 8, verse 16, it says this. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed and were, uh, were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Why did Jesus heal people? Take a moment with the person next to you uh, and just ask. And if you have nobody next to you, ask, uh, ask yourself. Why did Jesus heal people? I'm going to give you... Uh, 30 to 60 seconds to talk right now. Go ahead. What, what was the purpose of his healing? All right, let's see what you got. Uh, yell it out. I know we're uh, in a very far distant land here. Those of you at home online, uh, type it in the chat. Why did Jesus heal people? Somebody. Oh, that's a, that's a pastor over here. Let's uh, skip them. All right. Uh, anybody over here? He had compassion on people. Yes, the character of God. He came to this earth, and he couldn't stand to see people hurting. It says that when he, when he looked upon the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Definitely one of the reasons why. Uh, the God that we serve is, is moved deeply. That word compassion is, is being like moved from the center of your being 
uh, and, and he, he's a God that, is, that cares deeply about us. Good, what else? In the back, way in the back, why else did Jesus? To fulfill prophecy. Yeah, very good, excellent, definitely. What else? How about in the middle? To show he was the Messiah, yes. Obviously, signs, they were to authenticate who he was, definitely. And now over here, the elders and the pastors over here. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he basically said something similar to what you guys said. He said that obviously to show compassion, but also to show uh, evidence that what he is saying is true, okay, to authenticate, all right? Now, we know that the purpose of Jesus' miracles were not necessarily to convert, but they were to confirm faith that was already there. There were times in Scripture where he would go to certain places, particularly his hometown, and he would not do miracles there. And it wasn't that he was handcuffed and he couldn't do it as if their lack of faith was kryptonite. It was more like he knew that they had chosen not to believe in him. They had hardened themselves to who he was, and no miracle would change their mind. Remember, the, the Pharisees would regularly come up to him and say, give us a sign, give us a sign. And they'd ask him that after he had just fed the 5,000, after he had just done the most awesome multiplication, you know, miracle. He'd walked on water, he had healed, he'd raised the dead, and they're still saying, give us a sign. And he said, a, a, a sign uh, for this adulterous generation will not be given. Because, because your heart is hardened. So to the heart of heart, he would not show his miracles very often. But the faith was to confirm. But I want to give you guys another reason. Another reason. The miracles of Jesus and the healing and, and of the apostles function as previews of the resurrection and consummation when believers will undergo the complete healing for which they long. Look at what this says in Matthew 8. It says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and, our, and bore our diseases. You ever heard the phrase, by his wounds we are healed? When I think of that, and I, and I understand that in Isaiah 53, the primary thing is, is that he became sin so that we might be, become the righteousness of God. He took all under the wrath of God. But there's also an instance, uh, uh, the thing here is that when he healed people, it was a foretaste of what was going to happen in the future. And, and he, he bore our infirmities. What does that look like? Let me read something to you. And this is going to come to you in an email called Question of the Week, Does Jesus Still Heal? So hopefully you'll have this. The hope of believers is that one day all of the ills of this world will be cast under the feet of the Redeemer when he returns to transform his people into his glorious image. Jesus' miracles have a future saving characteristic as messianic deeds of salvation. This follows from the fact that the cured, uh, cure of diseased persons, the raising of the dead, are to be considered as the renewal and the rec recreation of all things. Okay, what does this mean? There's a relationship between Christ's miracles of healing and the work on the cross. If the atoning sacrifice of Jesus is the epicenter 
of the, the beginning of the kingdom of God, the inaugurated kingdom of God, how do his miracles of healing relate to his death on the cross? The most significant explanation is found in Matthew here of Isaiah 53, 4, okay? It's important to know here that he, he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Jesus takes over the burden of disease and suffering from men. It is true in this passage that Jesus does not appear as the one who takes this burden in his suffering, but a great exchange occurred between Jesus and those he healed during his ministry. Jesus took the burden of the miseries of his people on himself by virtue of his sufferings. When Jesus entered into his passion, he was blindfolded. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was then nailed to the tree and poured out his blood unto death. Each healing miracle finds a counterpart in what the Savior suffered. Jesus was blindfolded in the place of the blind. He became lame for the lame, became paralyzed for the paralytics, poured out his blood for those with an unstoppable flow of blood, became silent for the mute, had the powers of evil unleashed on himself for those who had been demon-possessed, and was raised from the dead in order to raise the dead. On the cross, the sinless one became unclean so that unclean sinners can be made clean before God. The law indicated that if someone touched a leper or a person who had died, they became ceremonially unclean. In the, act of cleaning, in the act of healing, what does Jesus do? He touches the leper, both the leper and the dead. Though the substitutionary transfer of the uncleanness was not evident immediately, it became clear that Jesus became the most ceremonially unclean person who had ever lived when he hung on the cross under the wrath of God. Just as Christ took our sin on himself, he took our misery on himself. Jesus substituted himself for those whom he had come into the world to save. In order to give us the hope of future forgiveness, restoration, and life, Jesus had to take all of our sin and our sickness on himself in his sufferings. What does this mean? Practically, our confidence in Christ is not in the assurance that he will heal all of our sicknesses and diseases in this life. That's the trap of our world, is just to live for the here and now. Though God does often heal his people who cry out to him for healing in the here and now, and I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to pray for healing and allow us to pray for you for healing, whatever that might be. But he has secured lasting healing of our whole person at the resurrection. In Christ, God forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases, Psalm 103. Our hope as believers is that we will experience the full realization of the substitution of Christ on the day of resurrection. There is a day coming for believers when death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, Revelation 21. Does that not give you a desire to step over the line and share this message? It's a message of hope and and grace and people who are suffering now. They're not alone. The the scripture says that Jesus, you know, knows in every which way. He was tempted in every way that we are. He became a man to experience what we experience. We, We serve a God that can relate and that can translate and transfer and transform. This is why the disciples kept preaching. In Acts 4, they arrested him and said, okay, we, don't, we can't find anything to charge you for, but stop it. Well, they went back out and they started preaching. And in the rest of this story, what do they do? They go back out and the Sanhedrin get really upset. Look at verse 17. Let's bring us back to the text. 
Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the parties of the, uh, the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. You know, I was thinking about this this week, and you know, I was like, yeah, you know, those religious leaders. I, we always tend to put the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders and the, the Sadducees. By the way, Sadducee, the reason why they were Sadducee was because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in Jesus. But um, we always tend to put them up there like, oh, yeah, these are the bad guys. And in reality, we are, sometimes we are so much more like them than we are the disciples. When does what I do, when is it motivated by jealousy and envy? It's a great internal question to ask you. Of, of the things that you and I are doing, not just in church, but at work, in life, in our family, money, jobs, what's motivating me? I, I just want to remind you that jealousy is one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. And it's, it's deadly. And it was the reason why they killed Jesus. Even, even uh, Pilate said, it, it says in in, in, in some of the scriptures in Mark and Matthew, it says, he knew, Pilate knew that the, Jew, the, the chief priests had given them over because of envy. What were they afraid of? They were afraid that they were losing their power. Jesus was, was, was taking the crowds away. And so that's what's motivating these guys. Look at what it says. They arrested the apostles. They put them in the public jail. But look at verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell all the people about what? I love you, and I know some of you don't bring your Bible or look at the Bible, but I really want you to during our sermons. What does it say, those of you who have a Bible? The message of life, the new life. Is, is, is your experience with God, is, and your experience with church and the gospel, is it life-giving? Is it life-giving? The message of life. Interesting that they would call it that. It, it, it in the book of Acts, they call it different things at different times. But they said the message of life. This is a life-giving message. You can't just keep it to yourself. It's, it's life-giving. And it says, go and tell all the people about this new life. Now, again, what do we do with this? How do we, how do we, uh, how do we uh, apply this? Does an angel of the Lord always uh, you know, rescue us? Well, guess what? Uh, later on, it happens with Peter in Acts 12. Later on, it happens in Acts with Paul and Silas. In fact, most of us don't even know this one, or we confuse this one with the one from Acts 12, where Peter's knocking on the door, and they're like all praying for him because they, uh, <laughs> they think that he was going to be killed, and then he's like, it's me. And they're like, whoa, you know, that's Acts 12. And then Acts, Acts 18 or 19, or when Paul and Silas are in jail, they're praising God, and God has an earth. But guess what? In Acts 6 and 7, Stephen, Stephen doesn't get a rescue. He gets killed. In Acts 12, James gets beheaded. So it's not like, again, you can't like say, oh, you know what, what have you done for me lately? And that's why, you know, sometimes well, I love what, to hear, see God's answers to prayer, but I don't like it when people say, oh, thank you, your prayers worked. As if, you know, it's like a little magic charm or like a little technique or, you know, oh, they worked. Well, yeah, you know what, I have prayer requests that I hope you guys pray for. And if God does something or I see something God does and I, I'll be like, yes, thank you for praying. But worked? is a dangerous word because I think God is always at work and we don't always see it in the invisible. God was at work when James was beheaded. God was at work mightily through Stephen's martyrdom. It brought, it brought Paul, Saul to Christ, okay? And God has purposes that we don't always... So again, you might not always get the deliverance in the here and now, but we can trust that God is sovereign. 
Look, if you have your Bibles, look back at Acts 4. You remember when they were first arrested and then they let, and then Peter said, hey, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to still do this. Peter and John, we're, we're going we're gonna to obey God. We're going to go out and do this. And they're like, oh, we can't find any charges. So they let him go. So Peter and John run back to the, to, to, to the, to the, to the believers, and they all have a prayer meeting. Remember that? What's the first thing? Okay, interactive sermon here. If you're looking, I think it's Acts 4.20. What's the first thing when they address God and they pray to him? What do they call him? Yeah, go ahead, look it up. Otherwise, I'll be here for a while. Somebody, I heard somebody say it. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. And they prayed scripture. What they did was they said, you know what? All the rulers and the authorities, all the stuff that's going on, all the opposition that we're facing, you are sovereign above that. You are greater. You are bigger. And, and, and that's what gave them boldness in Christ. I don't know about you, but I struggle to have boldness in Christ. I can be bold here with you, but can I be bold enough to talk to my neighbors about Jesus and to make time and to love them and to get involved in their life? I wish I was a lot bolder, okay? What gives us boldness? A lot of things. Realizing that the gospel is, will prevail despite opposition. Why? Because God is sovereign, the sovereign Lord. He's in control. He holds all the rulers and authorities, all the things that are holding you back. He holds the keys. Whatever prison or dungeon you're in today, he holds the keys. He has the ability uh, and he has the will, uh, he has the will to, to set you free in his timing and in his way. The question is, am I going to submit to him? One of the joys of preaching uh, this week has been uh, reading about uh, John Patton. You guys know who John Patton is? He is not the general George Patton. Uh, I enjoy uh, George C. Scott's movies on that. I don't even know if it's George Patton. I'm probably messing that up. Um, but John Patton was a missionary in, uh, to the New Hebrides, Hebrides Islands in, off of Papua New Guinea, the West Pacific coast, uh, hundreds, 100, about 100, over 100 years ago. And this story appeared in Moody Bible Institute's devotional magazine, Today in the Word. One night, hostile natives surrounded the mission station intent on burning out the Pattons and killing them. They went into an area that was known for cannibalism. These people were, were very, uh, I hate to use this word, but primitive is, is, is a word that many would use to describe. Uh, and they were very cannibalistic. They knew nothing about even treating their neighbors even respectfully. They killed, they fought. It was a lot of violence. Uh, John Patton was there ministering with his wife and his, and his and newborn child. Uh, one night, hostile natives surrounded the mission station intent on burning out the Pattons and killing them. Patton and his wife prayed during that terror-filled night that God would deliver them. When daylight came, they were amazed to see their attackers leave. A year later, a year later, the chief of the tribe was converted to Christ. Remembering what had happened, Patton asked him what had kept him from burning down the house and killing them. The chief replied in surprise, who were all those men with you there that night? Patton knew no men were present, but the chief said he was afraid to attack because he had seen hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords circling the mission station. This so the story sounds eerily the same as what? You ever heard of Elijah? Elisha, chapter uh, 2 Kings 6, where the, the armies are surrounding him to kill him, and his, and, uh, and his servant's like, dude, we got to get out of here, and... and 
And it says Elijah prayed that his, the ser- eyes of his servants would be open. And when his eyes, the servant's eyes were opened, he saw angels like chariots of fire surrounding him. This is a reality. This is a reality. This is a, a something that God does. And if you read scripture, God it has angels that he puts around us and he protects us. And, he, and, he, and it's all for the sake of his mission, for the gospel. The reason why I told you I said I was encouraged this week by John Patton's testimony is because you know what? His first wife died with him out there. She died of malaria and ague, which is a disease. And the newborn infant died. He lost his son and his wife. And everybody said, come home, come home, come home. And he came home. But God put on his heart those people. And he went back. <laughs> Praise God. And he got a new wife. And God gave him kids, a second wife. And, and, and they went and they, and that today, to this day, that is the most Christian, the Melanesians are one of the most Christian uh, tribes in all of Papua New Guinea. Uh, and, and, and not just not by Christian, like westernized or, you know, that kind of thing, but uh, imperialistic in any way. No, but in the idea of them knowing Jesus and loving Jesus. And the testimony lives on. John Patton, P-A-T-O-N, look him up. There's a few books by him. If we can only see the angels, if we can only see the chariots, God is at work. As we bring this to a, a close, let me just say a, a few things. The saving power of the gospel will always prevail despite opposition. Why? Number one, God is sovereign. He's able to protect and provide no matter what. Um, by the way, if, if uh, I always bring books for you guys. This book today I'm going to put on the back is called The Insanity of God. Highly recommended. Our mission team read this, and uh, some of us watched the movie. There's a great movie documentary on this. It's a true story of faith resurrected. Nick Ripkin was a, is a missionary and just had a lot of bad things happen to him and saw a lot of devastating things and so also God at work and so it doesn't doesn't sugarcoat it doesn't say it's all easy but you see the power of God and faith resurrected in his own life and when he was on in the mission field so the insanity of God is a great book um, I got a couple others here but I, I won't talk about them God is sovereign he is able to protect and provide no matter what number two why is the power of the gospel uh, prevail because Christ has won the war he secured the defeat how do we know that your verdict on the empty tomb, he rose again. Remember, the power of the disciples was preaching the resurrection. Number three, why? God continues to bring healing to this world because of his death and resurrection and through his church proclaiming the gospel. Jesus is not a God far away. He's a God that took on our miseries and our sins, and he knows what you're going through today. I know a lot of you during this series are feeling like you're being pushed, and I'm telling you, jump in. Go for the mission. But some of you today might be feeling, you know what? I, I'm not there. I'm going through a major opposition. My faith is crushed. You know, and I just want to remind you, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He draws near to those who are uh, crushed in spirit. So I just want to encourage you, no matter where you're at, that Christ's healing is available to you. And I just would encourage you, let someone else come alongside you in your pain. Don't carry it all alone. Number four, the gospel thrives and Christ's church continues to grow amidst opposition. Why? Because it draws a line in the sand. It challenges people to be committed to something bigger than themselves. And then the last point, which is really from the last section, people want life, not strife. We live in a world right now that is so filled with jealousy and power. and Nobody trusts anybody anymore. And what does Christ's gospel offer? It offers us life and the power to love. 
amidst jealousy and corruption. John 10.10 says, The thief came to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that you may have life. I want to encourage you to reach out to Christ today. Let me close by reading this, uh, John 15. If the world hates you, keep, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, as it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of this world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. We will face persecution. We will face opposition. But the gospel will prevail. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your love for us. I thank you that you are a God that is gentle and humble and broken in the sense that you were broken on the cross for our sins. Thank you, God, that we can trust in you. When we are weak, you are strong. Father, I pray that you'd be strong for those of us who are weak today. For those of us who are struggling with faith, I pray that you'd soften our hearts and help us to percolate in your word. Your word says that um, the word of uh, faith comes by hearing the word of God. Father, I pray that we would be in your word. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are still afraid to join them. <laughs> no one dare join them, but they held them in high regard. Lord, I pray that that wouldn't be us, that we would be with them, that we would be with you, that we join in your mission today, and that we would uh, live out what we've been learning in the book of Acts. Father, I pray for those who are doing it, Lord. Somebody I know here leads a seeker Bible study on Friday nights. Father, I pray that you'd empower them and strengthen them, Lord, to continue to do that, that people would know you. Lord, a student reached out to me this week from Revolution of Love, and they were sharing Christ with their, with their friends, one who's an atheist and one who's um, uh, just asking questions, Lord. Father, I pray that you continue to empower our students and our congregation to engage the lost and love them and engage in spiritual conversations. Give us boldness to proclaim the message of life. Father, we thank you, God, that you are, your word does not return void. And Lord, we thank you for the people like John Patton who gave their lives for the gospel. And in their lifetime, they didn't see it all. But in heaven, Lord, and even now, many of us see the, the fruits of their labor. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this day, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to surrender to you, take our lives, and let it be. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?